This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, I'm Philip C. and this is The Breakfast Grill. When we hear about the middlemen, we won't be exactly generous with the compliments, but the reality that they've enabled globalization, facilitated convenience, as well perhaps delivered services and products at a much cheaper price. But it's the hidden cost of the middlemen and our understanding of the middlemen somewhat limited. To help us unpack this, I speak to Catherine Judge, the author of Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Now, just let's just get to basics. What is the middleman and how large is the middleman economy relative to the overall economy? Both great questions. Uh, let me start with the second. So part of the core idea in the book is that we actually can't disentangle the middleman economy from the rest of the economy because the middleman economy has been so transformative. And by the middleman economy, I'm not just talking about middlemen. So so to your first question, you know, middlemen are the connectors. They are the, the actors who provide value, at least in part, by helping us overcome all the informational challenges, all of the logistical challenges that are key to transactions that make everybody better off. And, and so in the United States, we have companies like Walmart and Amazon that are not only the, the leaders on the Fortune 500, so the biggest revenue generators in our country, uh, but they're also the two biggest employers. Um, and they, of course, are not just U.S. at this point. They are global mm. entities that have transformed how goods are made. And part of what I document in the book, if you look at something like the rise of Walmart, mm. uh, the scale of what they demand along with their demand for lower prices, fundamentally changes how goods are made. So you used to have goods that would be made within one country. When we think about the first stages of globalization, uh, a lot of what we saw was we were importing goods from abroad. The more recent development has been alongside these giant middlemen like Amazon and Walmart, these much longer and complex supply chains where goods are no longer made in just one place. But instead, you have multiple different nodes, mm. each of which is contributing what it can do most cheaply. And so one of the reasons we saw such supply chain challenges as we emerged from the pandemic is the very nature of production had changed. Uh, and it wasn't just like the struggle of getting goods from Malaysia to the United States or, or doing the reverse, but instead it was a much greater struggle where you had you know seven different yeah. countries uh, involved and, and frictions anywhere along that. Uh, had ripple effects throughout the system. And this is the essence of the book, that actually middlemen are not necessarily bad. It's just that they've complicated the supply chain incredibly that creates so much opacity and lack of transparency so that we don't really get to go to the source because of the complexity there. So in Malaysia, right, middlemen get a huge bad rap. You know, we always say, let's cut out a middleman, let's just move, move them from the system. But we still do need them, right? They do provide some value. It's just a question of that perhaps many of them have overstretched themselves and perhaps lost their way? Yeah, and I think that a lot of the book is about balance. It does suggest that right now we are out of whack, that the middleman economy and the relative power vested by middlemen and also the complexities of the supply chains feeding them. And again, that's the two sides. It's these large middlemen, complex supply chain, each of which actually feed off of one another. That as the middlemen get bigger, we have longer supply chains, uh, and that in turn enhances the power of the largest middlemen. And, and part of the real challenge the book shows is there's incredible advantages 
to relying on middlemen. And we are not going to get rid of middlemen anytime soon. But too often we see the advantages in the short run and the drawbacks become apparent only in the long run. And so part of what we have is a system where the first instinct is like, yeah, let's go ahead and just aggregate one more step. Mm. Let's create one more node because in the short run that appears to create cost efficiencies. But part of what we see is when you keep making a decision, you keep making that decision, you're actually introducing new sources of fragility into the system. Or when you're dealing with really powerful middlemen, they're providing incredible conveniences in the short run. So it's a lot easier whether you're a buyer or a seller. Trenched. But then they have power. And they have yeah. power and they become entrenched. And you, as you mentioned in the book, the hidden cost of convenience is really what I think is perpetuated as the cost of complexity, isn't it? Can you help us articulate that cost of complexity? Because when you describe it in the book, it's not just only financial. It goes beyond that, isn't it? It's a question about well-being, about basically accelerating the loneliness pandemic. Help us understand the cost of complexity here. Yeah, this is part of what really came to life to me as I was working on this book. So a lot of my work had been on financial regulation, where we've seen large banks and long supply, like complex supply chains, basically like securitization chains, you know, originally created a lot of value. They got money to people who needed it, but then were really fragile. And that there was also an insufficient regulatory scheme because of the power held by the middleman. And so at first, it was tracking these across these different domains. But part of what you realize when you move outside the area of finance where money is fungible to trying to understand how does it shape the clothes that we wear, the food that we eat, and the way decisions we're making about how we eat and, and what we put into our bodies, but also our, our family, you know, and bring into our family's home, uh, impacts other people around the world. And uh, then suddenly we're seeing like people today care about a much greater swath of values. Mm. And we really are systematically blinded to a lot of the ways our decisions impact other people um, and really impact the planet. And so part of what the book illuminates is the fact that whether we wanted to or not, our decisions have consequences. And right now, uh, too often, we don't see those consequences. And that adds to some of the tension we see between the values many of us purport to hold and really want to live up to. Mm. And the reality that it's much harder uh, today than you would think, because we actually have such a hard time knowing the impact of our actions and how, how workers are actually treated. A very consequential event was the 2008 financial crisis. And you, in the book, painted a very much elaborate story about how that all came about, the, the lack of transparency, the opaqueness of the security, securitization of those housing loan mortgages. It really had significant impact on everybody. The question now is, because of the opacity and transparency, we really don't know what happened, isn't it? The root cause of where was the tipping point or whether we could have anticipated the tipping point to avoid it, that whole financial crisis? Yeah, and I think sometimes looking for a tipping point is the wrong approach. It, it, you really do have to start to think in probabilistic terms, and it's really hard for most of us to do. But that's, and that's part of the reason we have a hard time conceiving of the conceptions of, like, oh, the complexity could hurt us down the line. Is it salient what we're immediately seeing? It's not salient what we're not seeing. It's not salient the future risk that we're creating. And part of what we saw in financial regulation are one, again, at first it felt like it was creating real gains. I mean, mm. so we actually saw housing, like the number of Americans who owned their own homes was going up throughout the early odds up until 2006. And so it looked like, oh, wow, securitization, we're able to tap 
new investors for capital. So suddenly you had money flowing from Europe and from Asia into the U.S. housing market. Well, that allowed Americans to buy homes. That seemed like a good thing. When you tried to map the system, there was a complexity there that created fragility. And again, going back to the power imbalances, there was so much more power in the hands of the banks and the intermediaries than there were in the borrowers that we also saw a fundamental shift in the regulatory rules in ways that really facilitated predatory and exploitive lending, which ultimately hurt not only the borrowers, but the broader health of the financial market. So it was these two different problems together. There was complexity and there was a concentration of power. And they kind of pull in different directions, but in different ways, each of them increased uh, the fragility of the system and the probability it was going to dysfunction. So you're right. It's hard to go back and say, was the tipping point the correction in housing prices in 2006? Was it the correction in the ratings on mortgage-backed securities in the summer of 2007? Uh, I mean, it was a slow build, uh, actually, in terms of when things went wrong. But part of what's interesting is oftentimes if there's a correction, then securities get repriced and we figure out how to move on. There's losses, those losses are allocated, and then you figure out how to work from there. You know, we saw the dot-com bubble burst. Mm. What was interesting here is we have losses, but the system had become so complex that market participants and regulators couldn't actually feel figure out fully how those losses were allocated across the system. Yeah, and your book was very clear about the need that the issue being that we have this whole balance out of whack. And sometimes the counterbalance also doesn't work, like peer-to-peer lending. That failed to address the credit risk of industry as a whole. Yeah, and that's part of what's really interesting, going back to the, we want to get rid of middlemen, we want to go direct. And part of the idea of we need a healthier balance is, look, there are some situations where we should go direct. Part of the way we start to create a healthier balance is just to remind ourselves of the impact. So when you are trying to get food on the table, you know, go to your grocery store for a lot of it, but maybe try to find a couple <laughs> things that you can get from the grower just to be reminded of that sense of connection and that sense of place. And that you kind of have a positive impact and not just a negative impact on the lives of others. But in a lot of areas, going to the source isn't going to work and instead actually could exacerbate problems. So peer to peer, people were horrible at trying to figure out who was a good credit risk and who was a bad credit risk. All kinds of explicit and implicit biases people had about other people from racial biases to, you know, you were overweight uh, suddenly resulted in different access to credit. And, and the system really didn't work well. And so that was an area where, you know, maybe really complex long securitization chains are suboptimal. But trying to have people team up together to lend money to other people, you're not going to get touchy-feely feelings, and you're also not going to get the rich body of data that the banks and other sophisticated intermediaries have. And so maybe there's a real place for an intermediary to help play a bridge, but with a slightly shorter chain and with more accountability than we've often had. And that's why data is essential. That seems to be the underlying theme across the board that when we don't have access to data or when the data is not is opaque, then either money is left on the table or we can't really get to understand what were the issues and challenges, right? And for and the worry I have now is we fast forward to the likes of Amazon and Walmart. Their biggest asset is data. That's what they do to monetize and that's what they do to entrench themselves as middlemen. And definitely the case. And that's what makes this moment such a really interesting time to think about the structures and also the direction of the middleman economy and why big data technology actually can pull in very different directions, right? So originally, I think we thought, all right, well, the internet is going to mean we don't need any of these intermediaries. 
you know, we can go directly to the source, you know, we can go, we don't need travel agents since we got rid of travel agents. But guess what? There's so many other intermediaries that actually have gotten just more powerful in the interim. And that is the data that they're bringing to the table. So part of what's interesting is in some ways you would think these search engines, and we do see that, you know, in the United States, like Etsy is really popular, actually, in many other countries as well. Uh, And these small sites that do allow small makers and small consumers to connect. Uh, and there's particular markets for the ability to sell used goods. Search makes it a lot easier to create a really healthy market for used goods. There's a lot of ways that search can be really useful. Uh, but as a practical matter, if what you're doing is combining a huge number of buyers and a huge number of sellers, the amount of data that you manage to gather allows you to have a significant competitive advantage over any other institutional design. And that's when power starts to compound. And so that's kind of the idea of like, look, this does make our lives easier today. Like, let's be honest about the fact it makes our lives easier. And Mm. let's be honest that because it makes our lives easier, it's hard to opt out. But that doesn't mean allowing the the power that's growing to just continue to grow (laughs) to the point that there's no ability to have any check on it is the right outcome either. And the debate now is, how do you curb that power? How do you control that power? That is a function of policy, or is it consumer? It's both. I mean, I think policy, for a lot of these centralized infrastructure, policy has to be playing a role. But oftentimes, it's an interaction between the two, right? So it's, how can policy play a role to help restore choice to the consumer? So following up with the Amazon example, Amazon has an advantage not only because of the amount of data, but they also have an incredibly delivery infrastructure. Hmm. So I can get almost anything I want from Amazon same day sometimes or next day. And if you're an Amazon Prime member, that feels free. By contrast, if I want to buy that similar good from a small business that is you know, in the Midwest, it's going to take a few days and it's going to cost me a lot more money. And so how can we do things like make sure not only that we're being robust with antitrust to make sure there's not abuses of the concentrations of power exist, but also from the bottom up, like what are the ways we can start to really build the infrastructure that allows consumers and small businesses who don't want to like connect through Amazon, but want to connect directly and really kind of keep both like wealth and intimacy and power and a very different type of, of balance, continue to make that a viable choice. So maybe people are paying some price, but a smaller price to opt out of a dominant system. On The Breakfast Grill, I speak to Catherine Judge, the author of Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source, as she breaks down the opacity and complexity of the middle economy. After the break, the principles and solutions we should adopt to stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Welcome back. I'm Phil C. And with me is Catherine Judge, the author of Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. Now, Catherine, we had a conversation about the the issues surrounding the middleman and the middleman economy. Let's talk about the solutions. And in your book, you've outlined five principles. Let's be clear, principles, not rules, because I think, as you point out, that we shouldn't necessarily just negate the middleman completely. Let's just go through the five principles. Principle one, intermediation matters. Principle two, shorter is better. Principle three, direct is best. Principle four, follow the fees. And principle five, bridges can help. I get the first three, the, the intermediation matters, shorter is better and direct is best. But let me, can I just deep dive on principle four? Follow the fees. That's hard, isn't it? 
it is really hard. And part of the question is like what policymakers can do to make it easier. So the idea behind follow the fees is that realistically, most of us are going to rely on some middlemen, if not many middlemen, uh, in the context of our daily lives. And part of the way that we make sure that they are serving our interests rather than allowing ourselves to be manipulated in ways where we're making decisions that benefit them but are suboptimal for us is that we need to understand what their incentive structure is. Mm. And some of that is just around disclosure, like how were they compensated, but also kind of like what are the potential alternatives that are out there and how would those alternatives compensate them? And and so again, like a lot of our work is in financial regulation. Part of what we see is historically that, that very often financial advisors made their money not by charging fees for the services that they were providing, but they would provide you advice. It feels free, but guess what? When they put you in a relatively high fee mutual fund, or other products, oh, fund of they're funds. getting a cut. A fund of funds, exactly. Yes. We have these like multiple layers. And so part of the real challenge is like sometimes actually paying something out of pocket while it always feels like a little more painful to write that check could actually save you a lot of money in the long run because you, now you know the person is actually got your interest at heart and only your interest at heart instead of being compensated by somebody else. And we have similar problems in the real estate market and all these other areas. Yeah. I mean, the, in, the, you point to two really core things, getting the incentive structure right or knowing what the incentive structure is, being sure that we have alternatives in place. But governments all around the world have failed to address this, isn't it? That we find them perhaps enamored by these middlemen. Why so? I think part of the challenge is very often the middlemen come in because they are initially creating really good value. And then they can spin stories where if you change the law, some really bad thing is going to happen. And consumers and investors are usually broad diffuse groups. So they're not able to advocate on behalf of their interests the way industry that's very concentrated and very well informed and very well resourced is. And so the book goes through a lot of examples from the structure of the stock market to the structure of the real estate market to a whole variety of different retail settings where we can see policymakers know that there's something a little off and try to push for something a little different. Industry fights back, and then policymakers basically are too scared to go forward, at least initially. And oftentimes they do eventually, and when they do, there's real gains. But there's, I think part of the hesitancy sometimes might just be capture their beholden industry. But I think sometimes you also have very well-meaning policymakers who are a little scared to, to push for something different because industry manages to convince them. And part of what middlemen do is they connect people so they know how the market works. <laughs> they can tell very good stories. So you think you're going to help consumers, but really it's going to result in a bunch of market concentration where consumers like don't understand this. And you know, without the yeah. help that we provide them, they're going to make bad decisions. I, I think for me, one of the things that, caught, that struck my attention in the book is when I started reading the book, I thought that the middleman was purely a food distributor. So I wasn't very surprised by Amazon. But when you expanded it and talked about the real estate industry, the financial services, all being some form of middlemen, it it really got me thinking that perhaps a lot of us are middlemen. I would even say us in the radio station are part part of a middleman, isn't it? Because we're kind of taking content, we're kind of repurposing it and regenerating and kind of distributing it out to a certain extent. So what is our value at? We are a distributor, we are a pipe. That's all we do, isn't it? So how do we kind of pick and choose the battles? How does the government pick and choose the battles then? I was, that's a great way of looking at it. And I think part of it is realizing you can be a middleman and you can also do a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just that you're a middleman or not, but like as part of what you're doing, helping to bridge 
you know, like an information gap. And that is part of, of what you're doing in a really valuable way. And I think then from a government perspective, it's it's seeing, well, where are there potentially the biggest imbalances or where is there a trend line that suggests if the balances are not huge right now, they could be in the future in ways where intervening might help to protect value for a really significant swath of producers or consumers or investors. And, and, or the opposite is, is where is there a situation where you have intermediaries that have been in place for a long time? Yeah. And we've seen great technology innovation that should render them a lot less relevant or at least their field more competitive. And instead, they're charging the exact same prices in 2023 <laughs> that they were 40 years ago. You know, and that's really like things like the real estate agent in the United States is a good example. So and, where are the situations where you should have yeah. innovation, bring down prices, and the prices seem pretty sticky? And the question is, people are very uncomfortable with, dis- with disruption. The, the the interesting thing then is, as we, as we think about how do we disrupt, the easiest thing is to go direct to consumer. And I think the book explains with some depth about the direct-to-consumer model. And you painted a very interesting story about Etsy, about how it started, you know, being bottom-up, driving a lot of interest, but it also had growing pains and that at many times it risked losing its way, but it didn't quite do that. How does someone with the best of intentions start well, but not lose its way? Because some can argue that Amazon by its initial inception was also direct-to-consumer. It was meant to disrupt Barnes & Noble, uh, how does someone, as they slowly expand and become popular or, ex- or or grow in scale, don't fall into that trap of what we understand now as the complexities of the middleman economy? I would say it is really hard. And Etsy is a really good example. So first of all, the nice thing about a platform like Etsy is it shows how if you have scale at the level of the intermediary, you can actually maintain small scale on both sides. And so one of the key questions to ask is, again, follow fees. How are they making their money? And then also, where does control really lie? So are you creating a setting like Amazon where you can give like a five-star rating or a four-star rating to a seller, but you don't get that seller's story like you do on Etsy. You don't get to learn who they are. Like all of that is blocked from view. And if you actually try to write about that stuff in a review, like the review will be taken down, Mm -hmm. right? It's Mm -hmm. like we're going to discipline really bad behavior, but we're not going to allow an independent connection to be cultivated between the two sides. Whereas something like Etsy is cultivating that independent connection or direct to consumer. We have all of these companies that are coming in now and saying, we're going to tell you our story. We're going to let you actually see inside of our factories. And again, they're providing a partial view. They're providing an incomplete view. On the other hand, they're letting you know a lot more than you traditionally knew when you went shopping in an apartment store or when you went shopping on Amazon because you're at least seeing a piece of, of how they really operate their business. And and so I think that the part of what they're realizing is there's a value in the good that you provide and you're cutting out costs by cutting out a middleman, mm. potentially. But there's also a lot of value in the bigger picture, what is the story and the impact of this good that is systematically alighted in the middleman economy and how can we start to bring that to the table? So I think part of staying good to the purpose is staying transparent and promoting transparency. The concern is that it feels very niche it, it doesn't feel mainstream or mass market, that it's playing to the bourgeois, the top 10% of the population that are very interested in all these stories. But most of us really don't care. They just want convenience. They want cheap prices. They want accessibility, isn't it? 
So a couple of things on that. One is it can certainly, certainly feel that way. And a lot of the examples come from that because that's where you have kind of the extra, you're willing to pay a premium for all of this. But part of what the book really draws attention to is this middleman economy isn't just affecting who we are as consumers. It's affecting every aspect of the fabric of our society, including the jobs we have. And there are some beautiful and painful stories of workers who lost their job and knew they lost their job because Amazon was demanding that their employer provide cheaper goods and that they couldn't do that with U.S. manufacturing. So the manufacturing went abroad. But then they felt like no choice but go to Walmart, but they felt deeply conflicted. And so part of what's so interesting in the book is we're seeing actually like professional opportunities, not only like we're getting lower wages, but where work feels less meaningful, you know, like the nature of what you're doing might feel less meaningful. And so actually part of what was really interesting uh, for me is I've started to travel more around the country and I've been invited to a lot of areas uh, that are not urban, that are really small communities. And this is where some of what motivated some of this work initially. And you realize actually there's a lot of direct exchange in these communities. It's not what we're normally seeing in like the kind of like you go to Etsy and it looks really cute and like people are ready to spend a little more money. It's there, and it's, it's there already. But it's already there. Yeah. I mean, you travel in so many different places. Like we were saying earlier, my husband is from Taiwan. So we spend a lot of time in southern Taiwan together. I mean, the number of these very small businesses where you show up and like they're creating something and they're selling something, is they're, they're everywhere. And so they're not the high profile, but it's a it's deeply embedded in communities because historically everything was direct. Um, and, and so it's still there, I actually think, more than we realize in ways that really help to cultivating community, mm. uh, particularly in areas that, that are slightly less urban. I want to conclude by asking for your advice. Let's say I'm an entrepreneur and I see these industries where the middleman is just taking a chokehold and I really want to disrupt them. What's your advice to these entrepreneurs about how they should be disrupting the middleman economy? Have a regulatory strategy in addition to having a great business strategy. Recognize, first of all, the disruption is going to be a lot harder than you think because the entrenched intermediaries are going to do everything they can to hold on to the current system. So there's a whole variety of areas where we've seen disruptors come in. They're offering genuinely better product, lower prices, and better ways to connect. And yet the entrenched model is so dominant, they manage to get regulators to shut out the alternatives, or they coerce major players on one or the other side of the market not to go with a new entrant. Uh, so recognize it's going to be a lot harder than you than you think, and recognize that part of it you're probably going to have to do is have a, a regulatory strategy and a regulatory set of relationships that you are working alongside promoting your business. On The Breakfast Grill, Catherine Judge, the author of Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.